it's the biggest shock to me that you watch the show. <laughs> that's the thing that shocked me, and that's why you're here. Because, you know, like, the first time I was introduced to your stuff was, it's got to be, like, I'm 31 right now. So it has to have been more than 10 years ago. Because yeah, I was at yeah. USC. Yeah, I was, like, a sophomore or something. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think YouTube is underrated. I, I actually, like, in life, I'm sort of, like... The best thing about YouTube is that you can like literally be like, I would like to develop any skill in life. And then there will be a series of videos about it. I mean, like reading is good too, obviously, but reading is extolled as a virtue in life. Like everyone's like, you should read a book. It's a good thing to do. But like, no one is like, you should watch YouTube videos. But I'm like, I've become a massively better cook. And now like, I realize the corollary of becoming a good cook is becoming good at cleaning, which I'm not so good at. So like, yeah. now I'm watching like YouTube cleaning videos. And so... <laughs> I think it's just like it's somehow seeped into my life that I'm like I guess I'm like a geriatric millennial, so I'm like almost forty. So I'm, but I'm like, I, I think I don't know how I even came across your show. Honestly, it was just sort of one of those things where I think it was because someone had told me like you had like put my website in another one of them, and I was like, oh. yeah, yeah, that but that was a while ago. Yeah, that yeah, was exactly. when I wasn't doing this. I was just doing one-off videos here mm -hmm. and there just because I had an idea. You know? But then I sort of like. I think it was also because I was living in Basel and I was feeling very lonely for like Americans. And so I like would like put your show on and like whenever I was doing some sort of non-composing work and be like, ah, oh, there's actually I think the, the thing I like about your show is it's almost all people I haven't heard of. You know what I mean? It's really? Like, well, I mean, yeah, because it's like a lot okay. of young, young composers. Yeah. Like, like I don't like like I mean, I watch a Timo episode because it's like. I know what Timo has to say. Like I talk to Timo every day. <laughs> like, but I was. So nothing more... he said in that episode was that surprising to you then. I don't think anything Timo said was okay. surprising. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was the first time I met him. That's that was so the funny. very first time I met him was when I picked him up to do the show. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Timo's Timo is Timo's great. Obviously, he's one of my dearest friends. No, I I, I like the episodes that are like this random like you know undergrad or like grad student or something who I'm like I mean where would I hear like that. Yeah, well, that was the reason. I want to have people like you on the show. Mm. And I've had people like Bruce Broughton, and I've had James Newton Howard also on the show. Yeah, too. yeah, 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 yeah. But I've also wanted to have people that are, you know, maybe that are just coming up. I want them all to be part of the discussion. Right. I guess know? I was more interested in the, I mean, like, the the, 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 fam the fancy people are cool, but I'm like, kind of like, oh, what is like this random? I don't know. It's like, it's sort of like keeping your finger on the pulse or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I hope to do. So. That's why I do so many of them because mm -hmm. there's just so many people to talk to. Yeah, yeah. You know? Or or it'll be like someone who I like met randomly a couple like well, I know Bobby because he's like he was a student in Peabody. Bobby when I was G. Teaching it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't do that. G is it, I mean it's just I'm intuitively like uh, or because like I think it's G because I think no I've it is G it but like I just, he didn't say anything. I mean I as myself as someone who has like an anglicized name I'm like. I'm just like, you know, with spending all this time learning how to pronounce Chinese words properly with my having a Chinese wife, I'm like, I'm like, oh, Bobby, good. And I like learn the tone and then it'll be like, oh, it's Bobby G. And I'm like, just like when I go to Italy and everyone's like, ah, Cerrone. Cerrone, yeah, 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 and, yeah. I was yeah. just going to ask that. Is it really Cerrone? It's probably not that. No, no, no. And then, but like what I've actually, it was weird because like Switzerland was kind of like the halfway land between Italy and uh, America, but I'd still kind of went with Cerrone. And I, when I lived there in Rome, I obviously went by Cerrone because I'm not going to be like, actually, it's Cerrone, you know? So <laughs> I'm kind of like 50-50 on it at this point. I just like, I'm totally okay with But I grew up with this kind of anglicized Cerrone. So I'm like, you know. Yeah, and people know you by that now. So it's hard to change it now. I, <laughs> I, I thought about coming back. Well, I like Cerrone. Like, <laughs> I'm going to come back and be like, from Rome, and I'm like, 
chicharrone. And yeah, then, yeah. of course, like, you know, uh, I would get, you know, made fun of relentlessly by my friends. No, no, of course. I mean, I, I do have a composer friend who's a film composer named Joe uh, Trapanese. Oh, yeah, I know about him. Yeah. Yeah. But Joe and I, Joe and I were into undergrad together and he was definitely Joe Trapanese. And, and I saw him and he like somehow said his name somewhat recently, maybe not, not recently, but I was like, he's like, and he called himself Trapanese. And I was like, you did the thing. You did the thing I want to do. Like, <laughs> and I was so happy because he, you know, he did it, but I, I don't have the energy to. I mean, even with my name, you know, I tell people my name is Saad all the time, but really that's not how you pronounce it. Saad. Saad. It's, it's hard. And I, and I, and I honestly don't care that much, you know, yeah, as yeah, long yeah. as they call me something, not like, oh, you dirtbag, <laughs> you know, I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think it's also just like, yeah, it's funny because, like, yeah, even my like my my wife's name is Carrie, but when she was born in China, her name was Yi or Sun Yi, her full name, because you say a full Chinese name, and then people are like, "I want to call you by your real name." She's like, "My real name is Carrie. This is my name. I, you know, my family chose it for me." We came, so it's just like you can be overly precious about, like, there's a kind of fetish and authenticity always, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that 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 continues to happen to me as well, but I. You kind of have to just take it as it goes, like whatever people are comfortable calling you or what they want to call you. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's more for them than it is for you a lot of where, the Where is your family from originally? Well, my dad is from Jordan. My mm-hmm. mom is from Lebanon. So when you meet like a Jordanian or a Lebanese person, are they like sad? Or is that sad? Well, they could say sad. That's sad. what they say. But okay. then, then, and then the next thing they would, they would say is, why don't you speak, uh, why don't you speak Arabic with me? <laughs> like, well, you know, I was born in this country and my parents just kind of stopped teaching me Arabic. Yeah, like yeah. after I was like five, like I showed up to preschool and I couldn't talk to any of the kids because I was only speaking Arabic. Yeah. Well, that's like, it's so funny because it's like every immigrant parents thing where you're just like, they're trying to assimilate so hard. And then you're like, later you're like, I really wish, like, I wish my dad would like have talked Italian with me constantly and I could just like do it instead of having to like learn it. I'm just like, you just had to do the language you already speak. But of course they're all trying to, you know, become American and English and, 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 and assimilate and all that stuff. And yeah, of course. I mean, it's, they, they are trying to do what they think is best for their kids. But you kind of wish you spoke Arabic. Of course. Of course. And I, I've taken some lessons here and there and I actually improved a lot. But then when I stopped doing that, uh, it, it regressed again. You can't, you have to keep it up. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like my Italian has hit like a plateau. Um, I had a call with a, a, an Italian percussionist, a group in Rome who's doing a new piece of mine. And I, I, I described this as we like, we vacillate because his English is not that good. And my Italian is like, not, not, I mean, I can speak, but not, you know, as well as I would like. And so like that, we just like, we're constantly switching back and forth between Italian and English on the call. And I thought it was like kind of wonderful. I'm like, this is like, you know, like we we both would sort of vacillate between the two, even within a sentence. It was kind of like some kind of magical. Yeah, but you wish you you were just speaking Italian. Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> well, I went to see uh, Jumpa Lahiri speak last night at, uh, and she she's uh, an Indian American, um, I guess Bengali, and that was her first language. And then she came to America and you know basically learned English, as you would imagine, as a child. And then deliberately learned Italian and moved to Italy and now writes in Italian. And then her Italian prose is translated into English, which is actually my friend who was translating it, which is why I was there. But like the idea that you would like go to another country, learn the language and translate into English is sort of wild to me. Jeez. And I mean, 
this kind of thing. I mean, it's it's hard for us to to even imagine doing that as a, as a, as an, as Americans too, because mm-hmm. we're just like growing up with English all the time. You're just like, oh, you and that's well, just that... like that's our that's our baseline. It's well, like, that was like when I was in Switzerland. I was like, oh my god, everyone speaks at least three languages. Because like, if you're in the German part, everyone probably everyone speaks English because it's like when you're a country where there's no neutral language, you all kind of want to speaking English, and then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most German-speaking people speak French. Most French-speaking people speak German. And so it's just like, you know, default to have three languages. And I'm like, Americans default to one language. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, like, I mean, you're obviously doing a lot of stuff with literary texts. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of your pieces do that. And you just finished an opera mm-hmm. in a grove. Mm-hmm. And it's all in basically in English, right? Mm-hmm. So how did you make a decision to say, okay, I want to write all my most of your actually i think all your texts that you choose i have one is in english isn't it i have a real cassetting from when i was like 19 uh that i did in german uh i i don't you know i just think it's so funny because it's like i've actually been like of all things like i found this like book in my parents basement of like limericks which i i think like i don't know how this is like me i don't know who does know or doesn't know but like i didn't realize limericks are like dirty always like they're like like limerick is, a, is an inherently like body dirty that. form that no that's like anything not dirty is like not a real limerick. like an irish limerick like a real an irish, irish limerick, limerick. Yeah, okay, yeah but like the one obviously so one part of it is that they're just really body and surprisingly like so i found this book of like incredibly like you know really really graphic limericks that i won't repeat here but anyway but the other thing it was like a thing in the limerick is like there's always like a off kilter like there once was a man from Nantucket who da 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 da, you know, and it's, so it's like, but there's always a like, you're always deliberately skewing, like a, an actual kind of internal to the limerick um, form is actually a kind of mispronouncing to make the rhyme work. All of which is to say, this is like a super roundabout way to say that I think one of the reasons I only work in English is like, I might have like a functional understanding of pronunciation of like Italian or something like that, but I don't feel like I could like, bend it like i know how when i'm like you know it's like when you sort of have stravinsky with his kind of english settings it sometimes feel bent in the wrong way like i i felt like i could only it's only in english that i feel like i could send something wrong on purpose or sort of skew a pronunciation with a level of comfort that i know would remain idiomatic to the ears of an english language native you know what i mean it's like i think it's something about the language of the english language which is super internalized to me, and also that I think that so much of the music that I write feels like in some way or another, it's it's, it's generated out of the English language. Mm-hmm. So let's hear an excerpt of, of what you're talking about there with Inner Grove. This is the scene with the outlaw, or it's called the outlaw, mm-hmm. right? Let's hear it. Greetings, I call out. There's a grove beyond the entrance to the mine. small fortune, moonstone, silver, pretty trinkets for the lady. The girl's eyes are far away. The trouble I keep on, I could use some help to get up She urges them on. She urges them on. 
Yeah, well, no, with this, I found it fascinating too because not only are you dealing with the English language, you're dealing with the idea of using electronics and you're mm -hmm. doing it in a way that it's like a Monteverdi on steroids, at least mm -hmm. to me. It's like word painting oh, yeah, uh, totally. at, a, at an extreme level with what you're doing with electronics. I have, I have no idea how it works and I, and I work with Max MSP all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's all in Mac. So this, I hit a certain point with my electronic stuff where I realized I needed to collaborate with someone. So um, this programmer, Dave Sanchez, has sort of been doing my Mac patches for the last... We worked together, and I'm pretty specific, but with the, some of that stuff in Grove, it was... I heard this Billie Eilish song called Zanny. Um, I don't know if you know it. I listen to a lot of Billie Eilish. Believe yeah. it or not, I listen to a lot of Billie Eilish. <laughs> <laughs> but do you, so you know that song? I don't know that one. Oh, there's but, like, uh, like, I'm in that... Um, now I can't remember the lyric, but it's like, just drinking canned Coke. And so whenever the bass hits, it distorts her voice with this kind of um, uh, this amplitude modulation. And mm -hmm. so I, I called Dave and I was like, how do you make this sound? Can you make this sound? And he's like, sure. And so I wound up kind of whipping it up really quickly. And I was like, because I wanted to have this effect of, um, it was funny because I was, I was thinking about this, writing this opera. And, and I think it's sort of. I said, you know, in some ways I, I, I painted myself into this corner because I was like, I'm going to have an opera that's just people telling stories. And that's like a pretty radically difficult thing to maintain interest in, especially when the same story happens three times. So I was literally like, I need every tool in my tool book and more to be able to maintain interest and, and, and paint the story literally. I mean, Monteverdi on steroids. And so one of the things I was like, oh, well, so this guy has been like had this his... He's, his head's been hit. He's like dizzy. And I wanted to like give this feel of distort, like distorted. Like, I mean, I think a lot of the pieces about perception, distorted perception. So I wanted to signal to the audience that there was something kind of awry about his perception and, and to sort of find a way to cast doubt on his accountability without winking into the audience or winking at the audience. So, you know, the first third of the opera, I don't think has any vocal processing. But as you get into the real recounting of the important events, everyone has some kind of distortion delay um reverb on there i mean there's only three or four actual effects in the piece i think there's like a pitch shift and a, a granulation effect that dave also wrote and that's i think that is it I, it's, it's a pretty limited palette no i noticed the more that i work with electronics the more that i wish that i did simpler things mm -hmm. because th those things number one they're more practical because they work in a live situation mm -hmm. and number two oftentimes those things just sound better in general oh totally i remember it's actually the problem is like the problem of getting better at things is you almost wind up you doing more and then i look back on my older things when i knew how to do less and i was like oh this was way more practical <laughs> like because mm -hmm. yeah. my friend emma o'halloran has this marimba piece um for the electronics and it's basically just a delay but it has some kind of little shifts on it and little frequency modulation. But just the fact that I was like, oh, that's so smart because like you don't even need a click track because you just hit the note and you hear the pace of the, you, you hear the speed of the delay and that sets the tempo for the piece. And so you don't even have to have a click track. It's really, really, really smart. Wait, so how does that work exactly? So I she goes like, da, you go, it goes like, da, 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 mm -hmm. da. So it's immediately you hit it, you're like, da, and you, you go da, and you hear da, 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 and you're like, oh, that's the tempo, da, 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 da. Oh, then the delay sets the tempo, basically. The delay sets the tempo, exactly. Wow. So you don't even okay, need to think okay. about a click because you're just listening that it removes one layer of, like, annoying complexity. So in your piece, when you're getting, because it, it happens on, like, this kind of distortion effect, mm -hmm. happens on the girl's eyes are, I think, far away. I think mm -hmm. that's what he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is somebody like timing that? Yeah, or does there's, the there's, computer there's, know there's that a musician who is basically running, there's about 300 cues in the piece in the max patch. So it's, it's pretty, pretty, it, it, requ it requires a dedicated musician 
just to do triggering. Um, this is like my favorite line from your program, though. You write a, I, I just laughed at it because mm. I, I have had this experience so many times myself where you had this line saying uh, that I don't remember exactly. I'll put it up on the screen now. But you write that you require a mixing engineer that, that is just as... Uh, I don't know what the word, the, I think there was a word you used that just made me laugh that is just as good, but you didn't say just as good, just as good as the, or at the same level as the musicians and the singers yeah, playing yeah, the piece. You know, and I just laughed when I saw that because I, <laughs> I remember so many times when I would show up and like the mixing engineer can't read a score, doesn't totally. really know what they're, what they're listening to. You know, I workshopped that phrasing quite a bit with a few friends because I was sort of going as the model of, uh, I can't remember his name now, it's Kurt. Uh, I can't, I'm going to bungle his last name, so I'm going to say it, who's a member of the Philip Glass Ensemble. Mm -hmm. And Philip Glass Ensemble always toured with one dedicated sound person, and I think he's a member of the ensemble. So I think I said something like that, because I think it was initially like a very negative phrasing. It was like, the the, the engineer must not be like an idiot. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like, the engineer must like be, like, isn't as important as a member of the ensemble as everyone else. I think that's the, the like word that, you yeah. used, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I can kind of not, I mean, it's just because I I've been in that situation. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah, anybody yeah. else wouldn't have thought a second about it because I've been in that situation yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I get why he put this in here. Yeah, it doesn't mean it works, but it, it's, it's right. you know, you, and, and I feel like at that point, I'm like, it costs a lot of money to make an opera. You know, the ensemble is pretty small. It's only nine musicians. It's really, you know, a lot of operas have 15, 20 musicians, you know, in, in the orchestra or a full orchestra. I'm like, we can all afford one person doing the triggering of a, mm -hmm. you know, and it does take a certain skill set. It's a little bit like being a page turner. In the, I know we, I was talking to students about page turning. That makes the other sense. Day. Yeah. So it, it was kind of, a, I mean, when we did it in Chicago, it was like one of the more stressful things was this poor girl was sort of reading off the score and she had this, like, I was like, you got to get it right. You know, because it was like, you know, when you make a mistake with electronics, it's just a lot more glaring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or maybe it's not, but it's glaring to me. Actually, it's funny. I had my, a few years ago when I was with the Albany Symphony, I had this crazy piece. Again, this is another situation where, I did something that was way more complicated than it needed to be. Mm -hmm. But I had my wife uh, triggering all the events in the ah. piece because we just didn't, we didn't have an extra musician I there. Wish I, could, I, w I wish I could teach Carrie to do that. I don't think <laughs> that's great. But like, but you know, because again, because we, we didn't put in the technical writer or whatever you want to call it, that there had to be an extra musician dedicated to doing the electronics. Why didn't you do it? Uh, I wanted to be out in the hall to hear yeah, it because yeah. it was the premiere and I didn't, it, otherwise I would be in the, way in the back and I can't hear anything. Yeah, yeah. I did that with my piece for the LA Phil and I, but they were very like, they wanted this piece called the insects became magnetic and that, that they were like, we really want you to be on stage. I think they liked, it was funny. It's the worst place for the composer to be in terms of the performance. Cause I was like, I was like running back and forth frantically between the stage and like off stage. We just did this piece over the summer at this festival in Oregon called the Brit festival. And that piece, that time I also was doing the queuing. And I also would sort of have no idea. I would have to kind of just like cut out for some of the runs. and But then the piece was done in Berlin this year as well. And that time they had actually hired someone to do it, to mm -hmm. do the queuing. And it was so much better because I was just sitting in the back giving balance comments and I wasn't worrying about triggering stuff. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, there's uh, the piece that I was introduced to. That's how I knew your music was a piece that didn't need any of this uh, didn't need any extra people queuing anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was kind of like in the box, and that's the piece Hoy Skimmerhorn mm -hmm. uh, for solo piano. So I want to I want to play a couple minutes of this. Great.
I don't know if people realize, but we I have no idea what we're going to talk about before we start the show. <laughs> so we just we've been, we've been on this electronics train for the last uh, few minutes or so, but it's great. Well, um, it's, I, I think it's somehow still missing in like composer education or something. But I, I do think it's it's getting there. But certainly when I was like coming up, there was like a electronics person, like, like a composer of electronic music and then like acoustic music, and mm-hmm. there was like. Not that many people who'd like literally like mine is probably like somewhere half and half for like a third, two thirds. I don't even know. But I, you know, in terms of def- you would be sort of defined as an electronic composer or not very early, I think, in kind of Western composing education. So for you, I mean, this piece, is a, this is an older, this is unusual for me. I don't usually put older pieces, mm-hmm. 2010 being an old piece in, in this context, but it, it was a it's a personal piece for me it's a selfish reason i put wanted this piece on because that's how i got to know your music got to know you but when you wrote this piece early earlier on were you labeled did you start to get labeled as okay i'm uh, this is an electronics guy or so i think did you have that problem i think back then? that i think early on sort of in my education i was not an electronics guy like i went to the manhattan school of music we had like kind of one broken corner room like barely and I got a scene electronic music I think I like there's there's a very long story behind that but suffice to say I did not get along with the professor there and they use this this program called Kima have you ever heard of it no it's kind of like a max light plus it requires like an incredibly expensive outboard unit it was very stupid and so I refused to learn it so I just kept because I was like I'm gonna learn max I'm gonna learn anything so I like got a C because I basically never learned the program but all of which is to say that I, and then I went to grad school and then I kind of stumbled or lied my way into a job at the electronic music studio. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, sure. I know what I'm talking about here. And of course I had no idea, <laughs> but the studio sort of forced me to just be in an environment where I had to like learn how to plug in. I mean, I was sort of saying it's crazy that you can go through music school and not know how to like plug in a mic and record something. I mean, Oh, easily. Maybe the pandemic changed that, but I, I don't, I don't think so actually. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, I can tell you this at Columbia, we have the you know computer music center, but I really was in there, right? Actually, mm-hmm. even though I know a little bit about electronics, I myself wasn't it, it was never required to really be there, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I if I'm the if I'm like that, I'm sure there are a lot of others like that going through the program, yeah. I mean, I think it sort of always makes you wonder what are the limits of your world, like, sort of like. I don't know. I think that a lot of people can exist in this world where they don't even know if they want to write electronic music or not because yeah. they're not sort of their their sort of epistemic universe as as composers is acoustic instruments and they might just be like, oh, that stuff it's complicated, whatever, or like it's messy or it's annoying. So they don't even know what their universe is, and that was kind of me. And I, until I sort of wound up playing around and 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 actually first actually it became part of my practice as a composer more that I would use the studio to compose and sort of I, I was because I was really chafing at um chafing at the limits of like kind of notation programs so the, I think the first thing was just like how am I composing and mm-hmm. so I think you know I don't know if you I mean I'm a little bit older than you so but you know I always feel like there was this kind of hierarchy of I write in my head you know on a piece of paper and then like you know by the time I got to school writing at the piano was okay and I was kind of like well I actually need I feel like I, I what like you know, to achieve a lot of the sounds I was going for, I felt I actually needed a studio. So I wound up just little by little using the computer as a, as a comp- compositional tool. So I would sort of write these things where there would be, you know, a lot of my stuff in grad school had kind of non-aligned elements. So 
you know, I'd be like, oh, what does it sound like when two pianos are playing these elements that don't line up and speed up at different rates and so things that chafed against the kind of grid in a lot of ways. And so f the first thing was just sort of writing in the computer, even if I was writing acoustic music. And that was kind of a lot of me in grad school. When you say writing in the computer, you mean writing into a like DAW? No, yeah, exactly. Like writing into a, into a yeah, DAW. Yeah, because with, exactly. this, with this piece, it's yeah. like, I can't even imagine like going into Sibelius or something and just plotting these No, no, I mean, down I, randomly it was written by the... me recording layer upon layer of myself right. and then making someone else play all the layers at the same time. Right, okay, that makes sense. And then it's almost like you're making the score after the piece is done. Right, and so anyway, like, so I finished grad school and I'm still writing mostly acoustic music and then I'm you know I don't know if that has happened to you where I guess are you still you're you're just finishing school now but you I did, just finished you're but like you you barely you, out <laughs> you're in the taper off of grad school or and yeah. you know you when I sort of got out of grad school at like 24 25 I was like I was writing all these large ensemble things and like I didn't have any like commissions I was sort of like writing for my friends and I was like I really wanted this big sonic palette so I think there was this moment, I think I wrote a very short piece for Load Bang where it was um, like Load Bang and like a bunch of processed sine waves just played along with a track. And so Load Bang, baritone, a baritone, bass clarinet, bass clarinet trombone, trombone, tuba. tuba. It's like you make this ensemble. No, uh, no not tuba. Trumpet. The, the, trump, trumpet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Trombone, and I'm like, trumpet, you make yeah. this ensemble blend. I can't do it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, but it, how I blended it was this layer of sine waves. And so I think that that was like, basically I was out of school. I wanted a really large sonic palette. I was thinking of myself as a large sonic palette person and electronics was just like, this is how I'm going to do it. You know, this is, this is how I'm going to create. And I just, so I think the need for a certain kind of sound world was really the thing that inspired me to start mm -hmm. working with electronics at that point. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I feel the same way. Although I feel like the more that, the more that I, the older I get, the less electronics I use just because I am getting so frustrated with implementing them. It's, it, it feels like it's not getting any better. No, it's really, no, this new thing I'm doing is insane. It's like this, it's new piece for eight voices with like 130 cues and like live processing on eight, all eight voices. And it's like, it's like, and, but the Are after serious? The, yeah, yeah, this is a new piece that'll premiere <laughs> next month with Lorelei Ensemble. And there's video, and the video has to get triggered. But I didn't do the video, but that piece kind of broke me in terms of the complexity. And I was just like, for a while, nothing, you know. And for for a while, I have, everything I've written since then has been acoustic, and that I finished that like in March mostly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I mean with this, not to harp on this piece, the Hoyt piece, but um, it's just it was the first time I actually wrote a paper too about a contemporary piece. And I remember sending you the, and yeah, I didn't I know, I, it to me. I didn't, I've sent you the, the research paper, whatever it was, a five page thing, or, and you had some comments. I actually don't remember what the comments were. Uh, I was trying to find it, but I couldn't find the paper. But, you know, it's, it's funny because this piece also gets into aesthetics too, because it's not just using the electronics, but also the aesthetics of what you're doing. Because, um, you know, you're, you're writing and you clearly have a style that kind of started in some ways with that piece. Totally, totally. You yeah, know? it was, that, I mean, it was still, I feel like in grad school, I was like playing around with like, you know, probably in undergrad, I was quite a, quite a, quite a modernist. You know, I was, I was writing kind of more astringent sort of, I wouldn't say atonal, but atonal-ish, more, much more modernist, much more European influenced music. And so, you know, I was sort of dealing with that influence and then kind of thinking a lot about spectralism and, um, which still is very informing my music. And then like thinking a lot about Feldman and sort of the New York school and cage. And I think that it, before that, I was sort of just sort of processing these in this very kind of untotally digested ways. And that was the first piece where I was like, and I wrote it really fast. I remember, and it was, a, and it was kind of a mess because I wrote this 
bizarre graphic score where it was like three of a certain size. I mean, we're talking about not being able to write something in Sibelius, but <laughs> it was like three and you would play any notes and then you would have these processes hidden within, you know, that, that, and so, you know, I, I showed it to Timo and, and Timo was, cause I was living with him at the time, Timo Andrus, and he was like, yeah, this is great. Like maybe get rid of the indeterminate stuff. <laughs> you know, just like, he said that totally. Oh but, man. <laughs> he was pretty, funny looking he, back now. He huh? was very discouraging of the, he's like, all of this is cool except the notes you didn't pick. <laughs> you know, like, wow. Yeah. And I was like, you're kind of right. Honestly, like, I needed that process to get to the notes, but then it's sort of, I think there's a big thing. It's so funny because I, I fight with my students about this all the time now, but I'm like, why don't you just write it out? And they're like, well, I want to give freedom to the performers. And I'm like, I can assure you the performers, unless they're a very special rare breed, do not want any freedom. They just, yeah, they don't want freedom. They just want to play what's in front of them. They want to be able to, I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, I mean... It's like, like like cooking or something, and you're like, oh, like you don't hand someone like a cucumber and like a and like a, a pickle and I don't even know like a like a steak and then like you know some you know a bunch of random ingredients. You're like make make a meal. You're like no, I want a recipe. Like give me a recipe, then I'll make the yeah, meal. Yeah, or if you bought a book, you know you bought the score, you bought the book, and the exactly. and the, and the book says oh just use cucumbers. Or it's like you bought whatever. a cookbook and it's like just right. just express yourself. Right, it's right, just right, like, right. No, right, I don't right, express right. myself. I want well, to yeah, musicians, to especially conservatory musicians, have a very hard time with, with yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and if you do want them to do something, you have to be incredibly specific. So mm-hmm. I sort of took my own advice and wound up notating all the. I wrote all the notes out, and I I think I did pick the best chords at the end of the day. Um, and so then I would agree. <laughs> thank you. And so then the electronic element sort of came at the end when I was sort of thinking that I, you know, I often feel like when I mean, I sort of was always I was thinking about how one of the big problems with electronics is like once they come in, like all you want to hear is electronics. So I was like, well, then I'm going to save them for this special moment. And so I was I was messing around with this program that is definitely not exist anymore called Audio Mulch, which was the program that girl talk and if you remember girl talk he's like this mashup dj who would like no. chop up like hip-hop and pop songs and sort of it was a very kind of aughts uh moment of uh, techno optimism <laughs> like you know that probably now would be seen as cultural appropriation but it, you know at the time he was using this program called audio mulch that had this granulator in it and i was I, so the first couple of performances i was using audio mulch to trigger these electronics and I was like, oh, actually, not most people don't own this program. And so I finally found like a granulator that someone had made and eventually just had a custom one made. But it was sort of a funny process of like, it was a, it was a moment of professional reckoning where suddenly people were like, oh, I want to play this piece. And I'm like, I don't know how you're going to play this piece. I hadn't even thought that through. You know, it was it was still, you know, I was like, it was so emerged into my, I was totally unemerged in my brain that like you would have to distribute the music somehow. And so it took a minute to figure it out. But then... That's when I settled on Max, just because it's it's very easy to send around. And that piece is still being sent out with Max. That piece is played all the time. It's probably yeah. one of my most people. And actually, it's funny. I just made a version of the piece that doesn't require live processing because I met this friend in Germany. He's like, I love your piece, Hoyt Skirmerhorn, but I hate live processing. Like, would you consider making a version without live processing? So I wound up making a version where, like, I took the live piano sounds and pre-processed them and they wound up being a series of cues that really? are triggered. Really? Does it work? I think so. I'll send it to you. You can, you can I, tell I'm me. I'm actually curious, yeah. I mean, I guess on a recording, it would it would work just as well, I would, I would assume. But in, in the live setting, I wonder if it works just as well. I haven't sent it to my publisher yet. My, my friend Dan is playing it in 
October, that's now, um, in uh, San Antonio. And he told me it's working fine. And then and Kai, this friend in Germany also. Yeah, so I just, I don't, I think it's like maybe slightly less of the platonic ideal. I mean, that is like a whole other topic of like, why do we idealize live electronics? It's something that I feel is very composer brained and not. Yeah, you know, this is ingrained in me as well. Yeah, it's like, I, it's I, better, right? It's like. Yeah, because I have this piece too that I just had a conversation with this guy that plays trumpet in Oregon and he wants to play my my uh, my piece that has electronics and we couldn't figure out how to make the patch work and this is a piece that's like eight years old right and it was just it was i i was like i, I gotta spend a whole day fixing this and i don't have a whole day i've been i mean i've been there so <laughs> no it's so funny i remember I, I i once had a lesson with with the now late great sariaho kai sariaho and i you know was showing her my work and i was like you know what was it like to write all these incredibly important pieces of electronics and she's i just remember she was like Oh, so I have to update the patches all the time. It's such a pain. <laughs> like, you want to know a funny story about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's funny because I was just telling my wife about this earlier today. I don't know how it came up, but um, it's it's good that we're talking about Seriaho, actually. Um, we haven't talked about her on the show yet. Um, she passed away recently. Yeah, few, terribly, last few terribly months. sad. But um, I was uh, last second called in a few years before the pandemic. She was like being honored at the Juilliard graduation. Mm -hmm. This was like maybe four or five years ago or so. I don't remember, but it was definitely, it was before the pandemic. And uh, there was this piece. I don't know if you know this piece for harp and electronics. Oh yeah, fall. Yeah. Yeah, I love that piece. And uh, there was somebody semester. playing that piece for the graduation, mm -hmm. but they couldn't get the max patch to work. <laughs> and I was already graduated and, you know, they have a tech department there that handles these things but nobody could figure out how to get it to work uh, many such cases as our former president would say basically what happens i get a call like we you know this thing is happening in three hours can you do it i'm like i don't know <laughs> i get the patch i don't know i can't even look i'm looking at it like i don't know what this is but mm -hmm. i'll but they offered like 75 an hour or something mm -hmm. so okay i'll, I'll come i'll mm -hmm. see what i can do and yeah, if yeah, not yeah. they just you know they didn't have another option right right so right. i show up there and and ara there our uh guzleman is mm -hmm. there the dean yeah, of yeah, yeah. Uh, Juilliard. I'm like, oh crap! And you know, I didn't realize that this was like a real gig. Mm -hmm. I show up there, open the computer, just literally plug it in, like very basic stuff, I, and I tell her play, and it works. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like yeah. 15, 20 minutes, and R is like really happy, you know. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, um, so do I need to stay, or do you, are you guys good? Like, can I can I go home? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, go go go. Like, let's call uh, Sariaho here. So then I leave and she comes, basically, you know, but I didn't get to meet her, actually. Oh, really, really? I get home and I bill the full three hours, mm -hmm. like 200 and I don't remember, something dollars. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I like stopped yeah. the whole day totally. for this. And then I get a text back from somebody at the Juilliard department, like one of the, the I think the tech department. He said, oh, you know, do you, do you know how to do math? <laughs> <laughs> So they, they wanted to charge you. They wanted you they to wanted me to be billed like, like I don't minutes? know, like for let's say thirty minutes of That's my time ridiculous. or something crazy. But I, I I ended up getting the money. I got all the you money. Could have been I, asked like, for. I can undo the work if you want me to. I'm like, like literally, this was like you know you had no other choice. That's also like right? chicken scratch for Juilliard. It's doing two hundred fifty bucks. They can afford it. Looking back on it, I'm like that was nothing for them because yeah, it yeah. was a big deal. It exactly. was a graduation. Yeah, exactly. Sariaha was there. She was getting honored. It was well, it was crazy. Well, it's just the, you know the thing is is that this is just always an afterthought. And that's why it's a problem. If, mm. it's, if it's not an afterthought, and a lot of European ensembles now, I feel like just have a member who's an electronics person. And when I just had my piece done in Strasbourg a couple of weeks ago, there's this group, Love Music, and they just have a member of the group who's the electronics person. And I just think that's the only way for it really to go forward as an art form. Yeah, well, 
we'll see how that happens. I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of American, like, American groups are a little bit, are not so integrated yet. I feel like Europeans are, cause they often have like a major or something. You can be the, I don't know. I just find I have much less issues on this very thing is that someone knows how to use Macs and can handle it. And, um, and in the U S it's always like an afterthought and some random person's like trying to do it themselves. I mean, my friend, I have my most complicated kind of live electronics piece is this piece called Liminal Highway, and my friend Tim commissioned it, and that's really like a piece that needs two people, and he's been trying to do it with by himself, but it's just real. And of course, they're like, so we like we we worked together really hard on it, and literally like he was like, and he got everything working, but then he's like, they gave me a six minute sound check for your twenty minute piece with like live processing, and I'm like, well. That's going to be what it's going to be, you know? Yeah, it's just not going to work out, yeah. No, no, no. So what do you, what happens with you then when you're working on a piece like Hoyt, Scammerhorn, or you're working on In a Grove, you're working on these pieces with a lot of electronics, but then you work on a piece like your piece, like Don't Look Don't look Down. Mm-hmm. I keep I keep calling it Don't Look Up because of that movie, that yeah, stupid yeah. movie that I we can, all watched. <laughs> but I know first. yours came first. <laughs> but, you know, you get to a piece like that, there's no electronics at all in that whole thing. But yeah. it still has the same kind of aesthetics that we, we we still know it's a Cerrone or Cerrone work you know mm-hmm. we still know that uh it's it's part of your thing it, and it still has a huge this huge sonic spectrum that we get to that we're used to from your music we hear it in that mm-hmm. so I want to I want to play a couple minutes of this Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'd say the line between how I work electronically and acoustically is so blurred because I'm actually my process now is almost entirely that I work directly into a DAW. I compose the entire piece in the DAW. Really? Mm-hmm. 
and then I make a score I'm after. Shocked. I'm shocked by that. Yeah, no, no, it's totally. In the, it's like, so it's like the John Adams method. Isn't that how he works? No, because he's working into like Sibelius and playing back in like a DAW or whatever. But oh, like, I thought he works straight in the sequencer. I don't. Maybe he does. I could be. I don't know. I haven't. Talked I, mean, I don't about know. Him. I I've never stood over his shoulder. I think right John's mostly it. still working with like MIDI being triggered in like a in like a score writing program. But no, but I was like, I found it really freeing. I found it really freeing to not think about the score initially or necessarily even who's playing what. And then figure it out later in terms of so I mean the way I wrote that piece is I went to I I, I I was really right before the pandemic too but I remember I like went up to Connor Hannock the pianists on this I met him at Juilliard actually where he teaches and I we sort of went through every cool sound he could think of and we recorded all of them and then I went to Sandbox's studio and we recorded like every sound in their studio and so I just built all these samplers Sandbox Quartet the percussion yeah, quartet exactly okay. yeah you should say who who commissioned the piece. So I would sort of just find these these sounds that um, I found to be really really interesting, and I so I, I sort of would, especially with like how on earth do you write for prepared piano? Like do you imagine the sound? It's like no, I entirely was just sort of I so I would I sort of figured out what the keyboard would be, and I just had my little prepared piano keyboard, and actually that piece so is that sampled? Is it like sampled? I mean, is not that... in the not in the recording or live, okay. but when okay. I wrote it, that's how I that's how I wrote it. Got it. Okay. That piece is interesting because not only I mean, in terms of electronics, there's this this trick I have that I've been using a lot lately with specific kind of rhythmic things where I just like mash my hand on the keyboard like very chaotically, and then I just like force it onto a grid with like a quantizing mechanism. So like really, so I'm just like like I'll just be like like totally unmeasured, totally out of okay. time. And then I force it all to onto a 16th note grid just by like hitting like the quantize button. And then as a result of that, you get these kinds of really stuttery rhythms or like pop, 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 It's like a way of creating a non repeating groovy thing. Well, this is exactly what I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next, actually, I was going to ask you, how do you come up with your rhythms? And now I'm like, I'm now I'm like, wait, it's almost like you tore off the, uh, you know, the, uh, what do you call it? Um, the, the, the package is like, wait, that's how you do it. <laughs> it's well, it's like, so funny because it's like, you go back to these things, you think about John Cage, right? You think about not in terms of prepared piano, but his oh, desire to kind of use a method, you know, to get away from himself, right? He's getting mm -hmm. away from his own tendencies. And sometimes I try to force myself into a scenario where like some kind of accident will like i'm always very mindful of accidents and that 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 was an accident you know that the first time it happened i, I wasn't like how shall i match my hand against the keyboard as a process i was right, just sort yeah. of like i think i had set a track to quantize for one reason or another and i was just like mash my hand on the keyboard and i was like wow that is really cool sounding you know and then you figured out what the rhythm was after that yeah but i mean i just literally like printed out the midi and then transcribed it basically. transcribed it and then i sent it to connor and then like we had to figure out well like it wasn't always possible as a result right, I'd, be, right. I'd send him a draft being like what can you do here and so he wound up rewriting that piano and since so much of the piano part was kind of percussive sounds it wasn't like terribly important if it was like a or a sharp because it'll be like click or I'd like you know it's not super pitch so we want to kind of re-keep a lot of what i do now kind of works that way where i collaborate closely with the performer keyboard eyes a thing that i felt through in a daw i mean so like, this is the problem I have. So I don't know. Like, the last couple shows, I don't remember what show I was talking about. We had this huge discussion about rhythm mm -hmm. because I was saying, I have no idea how I pick my rhythms. It, it feels like, it literally feels like I'm not making a decision that, that, I, that I picked. 
like with who, my pitches, who's, I feel who's like choosing your rhythm. How, what do you I mean? don't know. It's just random. It's just like impro- like imp- improvising, but not in any planned way. Like I do with my pitches. Mm-hmm. With my pitches, I, I sit there, I plan them out, I really think about these are the pitches I want, these are the harmonies I want. Mm-hmm. Even the form, I'm like, this is the form I want. Mm-hmm. But with the rhythm, when it comes to rhythm, it's like it could be anything. That's really and, yeah, and I, that is my that's. But with you, I'm like I hear the piece right. I'm like that is inevitable. The rhythm. I'm talking about rhythm on a micro level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. inevitable that it sounds like that. But now you're telling me it wasn't inevitable. Well, you realize that it's basically like a kind of statistical thing where like once you get within a kind of um, algorithmic landscape of like as long as you have a certain number of notes played within a grid, it's like all I don't know. I, I had this whole thought about rhythms the other day. I was it was a very like weird like walking to the train thought, but I was like, our our classical whatever composerly culture value so much like subdivisions of the notes that are not for but like so little for like like a quintuplet is like smart or a septuplet is smart or and, and i'm sort of thinking about how many cultures have these incredibly sophistication incredibly sophisticated rhythms that are all based on kind of things within this 16th note grid and i, I thought that was like it's because the and i was thinking the whole training of classical musicians other than percussionists is they don't really know how to play rhythm so either no and and, and when i was at juilliard we would we our ear training class was split into two basically like we mm-hmm. would do the dandelo which is like this sight reading thing and mm-hmm. then we would do um this rhythm training book mm-hmm. and for whatever reason like the people that had per- perfect pitch and could you know they could sing anything you throw at them mm-hmm. they couldn't for the life of them clap out like clap and taw a rhythm they really? couldn't so, do it that's so wild right i mean i think it's it's not a skill set that's necessarily drilled into us nearly as well as pitches you know what i mean like most musicians classical most i would say rhythm is usually not the strongest skill set unless you're like a percussionist or like a new music person like if you you can get through you know so much more music life with relatively low rhythmic skills as compared to your intonate like you have to have play the violin your intonation has to be so incredibly good you know like i don't know any, how anyone plays the violin and plays in tune it's insane to me like you're up here you're playing this note into like how do you do that well they have to do that first right exactly right? But otherwise like, it's like it doesn't matter if you're playing the right but then rhythms they, they right? try to play a triplet and it's like da 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 da. Well, i'm scared da, to you. death you should see the the piece i just finished for mm-hmm. la mm-hmm. it's like all like all the string parts are whole notes you know and that's yeah. the la phil well, that, that's its own strategy i you mean know? But yeah, I mean, I just think that we don't, if we if we actually sort of trained musicians to be as rhythmically adroit as we train them to be intonationally adroit mm-hmm. or whatever, like music might look really different. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember uh, it was a while back you did this like interview. Or I don't know what it, I don't know what it was exactly, but it was a really well edited video with David Bruce. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah you guys yeah, were David's talking cool. about quintuplets mm-hmm. and and how to you know how to like why you need to do that versus that. And I just found it fast. First of all, I was just just having you two guys talk to each other was a shock. <laughs> I was like, wait, how did this happen? Well, but you know, then... David, you know, he, I met him outside of, uh, the Skirball center at NYU. We were having our operas read at this old New York city opera festival. It was so fantastic. And he bummed a cigarette off of me when I was, you know, smoking as an undergraduate and which I obviously stopped long ago, but you know, that was the beginning of a great friendship then. And we see each other whenever we're, you know, kind of near each other in the same place. And he's such, such such a fabulous guy and fantastic composer too. And 
But it was a very long, and then, so then much, much later after that, did he start doing his whole YouTube channel thing? Oh, you didn't know him before before that. No, I did know him. Thing. I mean, you knew him before the YouTube thing, but you didn't like, know he was doing YouTube. I knew he was doing it when I started, you know, same as you, just sort of like just clicking around and stuff. And I'm yeah. like, oh, this is really good. He's really good at it. Yeah. But, no, yeah. but it was just it was just funny to see you there because I just it's like two worlds colliding. And yeah, I yeah, had yeah. no idea where the connection was. Yeah, that, I mean, it was a, a bum cigarette outside the Skirball Center at NYU in 2009. And then he just saw that you were working with quintuplets. <laughs> yeah, let's, no, let's no, put... we, we just kept track of each other. And oh, okay, much. okay. And we've continued to be. Yeah, no, and, it, and I will say that like often that's when you're writing. That's the biggest limitation is you're thinking about like, I don't know, I was like doing this like you know, molts subdivided to six bars with the triplets. And at some point I was like, well, if I keep this all in four, it'll actually get played, <laughs> you know? And yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had pieces where I literally had to rewrite the time signatures like three or four times. Oh yeah. And it was, it was hell every, every time like, Oh my God, it still doesn't work. I got to do it again. It still doesn't work. I don't know if you had those, all those the, things I'm, happen to you. I still. remember I had a very early lesson with a teacher of mine, Nils Vigelon from college. And, my very first lesson was this piece that I had written in like seven, eight, alternating with three, eight, with five, eight and stuff. And he just like the first lesson, he literally would just, it was like, there's your piece. It's in four, four. And I was like, oh like we, it's one of those like jaw on the, you know, great teacher moments. You're just like, Oh, yeah. that's much better. <laughs> like, so, I mean, now that you transitioned into the teacher role, I mm -hmm. mean, how is it now? Like, um, because I mean, you, you graduated a while ago. I mean, from Yale, right? You did yeah, your yeah. DMA. How long yeah. ago was that? So I mean, I got my DMA in 2014, but like we have that non-resident thing where you're, mm -hmm. I actually like, haven't lived in New Haven since 2010. And then the next part of the degree is that you go out into the real world and like build a career or whatever. And you send them like a portfolio of all your, I mean, it's sort of the opposite of the Columbia thing. Cause it's really like very real world oriented. And so the only way to get the degree is you have to send in like a portfolio of like, I don't know, however many concerts and compositions you've written. And you have to get five letters of recommendation from non academics. You're not allowed to get a professor to give you a recommendation letter. And so then I like, I'd like my publisher write a letter and, um, you know, maybe like a, some kind of administrator from an orchestra or something like that. So yeah, I, I finished in 2010, my resident portion. And, but then the next four years I was just living in New York. But you were teaching then as well? No, I mean, or? I taught, I taught when I was in residence through 2010, just as like a TA, but I really didn't teach at all from 2010 to like 2019 or something like that. You're like, saying that at uh, 2014, fin officially finishing the degree, right? Right. And well, I, was, I, you know, sorry, I got out of school in 2010, really, even though I was doing this non-resident thing. I think I applied for like a few teaching jobs, but it did not go well. And it was kind of like the height of the, you know, great recession. And there was like, no, no one was hiring me. And, and then I think I just, I also didn't really want to teach at that moment. I, I sort of had some bad experiences in grad school, not with my actual composition professors who were all astonishingly wonderful people, but just, I think the whole kind of structure of getting my DMA, I was sort of very turned off by, you know, what I felt was like the kind of the I mean, all the stuff that sucks about school, you know, like the bureaucracy, the kind of the the managing of people who, you know, are, you know, let's say uh, not as great at music as your cool composition professors or whatever. And and so just, you know, I remember I got <laughs> I got this letter from, you know, when you finish your doctorate at Yale, you know, you literally get this letter being like how you did. And I'm like, like, you know, you graduated, you know, you're done. And there's a letter in the mail, which is like. 
uh, you could really bone up on your 19th century German romanticism or something. And I was Wait, like, they would, they would be that specific. No, yes. That was like in the letter, you know? And so I, I think it, I don't want to say it left a bad taste in my mouth, but it, it left me being like, I need to go away from academia for a long time. I don't actually feel like I want to think about that at all. I, you know, I want to think about hip hop. I want to think about, you know, Aphex Twin. I want to think about everything but that. And so, and, and also, but much, much more importantly than that, that was just sort of some slightly sour grapes. It was, I didn't think I had anything to say. I'm like, what, you go to grad school and you get some student performances and then you're supposed to be a professor of music composition. I mean, that's like ludicrous. You know, I remember like, you know, you, you know, imagine teaching orchestration and you'd never worked with an orchestra. I mean, how, how could that possibly be? You know, you need to have real world experience. And so I was pretty much like, okay, I'm going to put the teaching thing on the shelf. I'm glad I got my doctorate, but I'm, I'm not even going to consider this as a real possibility professionally. And, and that was the other thing I was like, you know, all my heroes are like Steve Reich, Philip Glass, you know, Charles Ives, Morton Feldman, you know, Meredith Monk. Uh, these are not people who are academics, you know, I, and I felt that I just needed to put the, the academic, you know, and I feel like there's a kind of, yeah, like the epistemology of, of, of the world of an academic composer trying or not open or not is always going to be limited by the kind of the purview and the, and the, and the, and the priorities of, of kind of what, you know, what do you do to get a job? You know, what kind of music do you write to get a job? And you might not be there sitting at your desk being like, huh, if I had another quarter tone, I'll definitely get a job, <laughs> but it's there. It's, it's subconscious. And I, and I wasn't trying to pursue that at all. So I just did my thing. And then kind of like almost 10 and I would do like student visits and do random teaching things. And I, so I wasn't hostile to the idea, but you know, um, and I wound up giving a, a lecture at Peabody maybe in 2017 or 2018 at the invitation of the school. And I took the train down and I like hung out and like gave a talk and it was like such a great environment, a really wonderful place. And I wrote the chair at the time and I was like, you know, it's kind of a, maybe a little presumptuous, but if you ever need someone, like, I do have a DMA, you know, like, and he's like, well, actually, Kevin Putz is, like, taking off next year to write the hours. Do you want to, like, take over his job? And I was like, sure. And so I wound up going down there, and I discovered at that point, you know, 10 years later, that I, I loved teaching, and I loved doing it. Um, teaching composition. Exactly, exactly. I teach. I taught his private studio, and I, I just found it was just something that actually brought me a lot of happiness. And at this point you know, 10 years of working with all these places, I did actually have something to say. And, um, you know, it's a little halting at first to figure out how to teach composition. It's a little, it's always, a, it's a delicate dance, you know, in terms of how much do you say, how much do you not say. But so anyway, the year ends and the pandemic hits and, or the pandemic hits and then the year ends and, um, you know, Kevin comes back to his job. And so that ends there. But I started actually taking it a little bit more seriously, the idea of teaching. And then, again, I know every every job I've gotten has always been by weird chance. Um, so then I think it was, like, maybe on, like, Facebook or something, the dean of Manus, Richard Kessler, like, heard some of my music and that Ian Rosenbaum had posted. And he was like, this is great. And then I wrote the chair, David Little, kind of unrelatedly being like, hey, again, like, if you ever need someone, I'm, like, in New York, I'm around. And so I... I think they brought me on to teach one class and then kind of more and then they appointed me to the composition faculty and now i'm you know there now a you're lot. there i'm there a lot yeah yeah <laughs> i mean it's crazy because it's a very different path to what composers now are saying because I, I just finished my doctorate program mm -hmm. and everybody that's finishing is like head for like sending applications you know that's immediately or even even i sent applications before <laughs> i was done i was abd yeah, all yeah, yeah. dissertation and I was sending in applications too, because cool. there was like this thing, like what you were saying, 
yeah. I gotta get a job. I gotta get a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, even it's, if it's you hard don't really a want a job, there's not yeah. a lot of avenues. So it's not like I'm disdainful. I was just like, I will be poor and deal with it. You no, know, it's like I was thinking about that line from Morrissey, where it's like, I was looking for a job and then I found a job, and heaven knows I'm miserable now. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I wonder if that should be the default I mean, path for composers. And I mean, no, no, no shade to people who teach early on. It's fine. I just think it's. Yeah, mine was very, very kind of circuitous. And it's funny, I, I have applied for things and I have never once gotten an interview. That's actually not actually technically true, but until, you know, very, very few times in my life that I ever actually gotten a call back. So every time I've gotten a job, it's literally been like someone has called me up and be like, do you want a job? And I'm like, sure. But anytime I applied for a job, it would be like right, no right. response. Well, especially around that time when you finished the DACA, because mm. that's when most people are sending in. But like, even later on, I never, got a, I never got any interviews anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was weird because I got a couple, uh, I even went to a place in person. I'm like, mm. and I thought to myself, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, because yeah, yeah. number one, really, am I going to be teaching these kids? I just finished. I know yeah, I have yeah. some experience, but yeah, still, yeah. you know, totally. I, I need to go out and do my own thing too. Mm -hmm. So even in the back, like once you get that experience of actually being there, like this can be a possibility, mm -hmm. then the opposite thoughts start to creep up. Like, wait, should I actually be doing this or not? Well, I was thinking about this is like, if you get a teaching job and you're, you're say at 25, 30, even 30, right? Like let's say 30, let's say 30. <laughs> are you going to teach composition for 50 more years right. or something like it's yeah, a yeah, wild yeah, yeah. notion. I mean, there's a lot of life to live and you know, and I, I know that like, maybe this is not true of teaching, but you know, people are obsessed with like going to grad school, getting a DMA, getting funding. I'm like, guys, it's not that hard to earn $30,000 a year. It's not, you know, like there are other ways in life. There are easier ways too, there are, to are, make there, 30K it's, a year. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not that. I mean, if they're paying you 200 grand to go to Columbia, like, you know, great, but you know, it's, it is okay to like get a job and just figure it out. I mean, when I graduated, I was like teaching some piano lessons and engraving music and doing live sound and piecing it all together. And it was, it was, it was scary, but it was fantastic and so much fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I was, I have to say I, me personally, I was lucky, especially before the pandemic, because mm -hmm. I was getting a lot of orchestra stuff, mm -hmm. you know, as I was doing my master's at Juilliard. Yeah. yeah, so yeah I yeah. never really had to go and say, okay, I need to do engraving. I need to do all this stuff, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So for me, I, I, I was lucky in that regard. So I like looking back, you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh yeah, you know, I, I didn't, I don't really need to do this, that and that, but you know, there is a, there is a bit of luck involved. I think when you get out of school and you have gigs ready to I think, go, you I know? think honestly, almost all of the professional life, I say this to my students all the time. I'm like, you never know what's going to be the thing. So say yes. Mm -hmm. And you can't plan what the thing is going to be, but something will happen to you. that will be an opportunity. And then the key is to like make the most of that opportunity. And I can't say anything better than that. Right. So thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for doing this, man. Of and, course. Uh, really, really fun. Until next time. Yeah, yeah, totally.